This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Ahoy, ahoy. What are we talking about tonight, Puka? We are kicking off season two with a deep dive into the Changeling the Dreaming second edition core book. Maybe deep dive is not quite the right word because it's, you know. Shallow dive? Yeah. This This is a shallow doggy paddle into the second edition core book. But before that... Do you have any announcements, Puka? I have a single announcement, which is that, true to my word, I have put myself out there as a production assistant slash helpful rat on people's homebrew Changeling the Dreaming products. So if you're interested in doing Changeling the Dreaming stuff, well, Changeling the Dreaming content for Storyteller's Vault, and you need someone to bounce ideas off of, help with art direction, help with layout... I'm not quite doing proofreading yet because I don't have the strength, then you can reach out to me on our Discord and we can talk about it. But yeah, just trying to help people get their homebrew stuff. I think I might reach out to you myself on that. (laughs) Right on. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, Yet I have many partially started projects. (laughs) So, (laughs) and nothing completed. Story of my life. Yes. Which is now anyway. giving me an idea for rewriting the knocker kith frailty. But anyway. Uh-huh. Speaking of knockers and frailties. Yes, we have the Changeling Edition core book. The credits on this. So many credits. They developed by Ian Lemke and written mm-hmm. by everyone. Playtested by the rest <laughs> of everyone. Yep. I'd like to mention that for this shallow dive, I at least will be primarily comparing second edition to first edition. So my comments will be centered on what's new or novel in second edition. That being said, there's plenty of stuff which I'm sure I noticed the first time I read this book 20 years ago, but forgot about. And then reading through it again this time, I was like, oh my gosh, totally forgot about that. So Mm -hmm. it was sort of a mist clearing experience to read through it again. Same. And I like that they dedicated it to Jim Henson and Neil Gaiman. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, those are, if I had to take two people, anyway, yes. Yeah, (laughs) I think both of us, we could probably agree that this was the gateway book into Changeling for both of us. That's a complicated statement for me. Um, The tabletop version. Yes. Well, the session zero I had for LARPing, like that I showed up to where I thought it was a game of alternity. Surprise. It was for a LARP, but they had copies of the second edition tabletop core book out to kind of explain what the kiths are and whatnot. So mm. like the setting, I'd say this book introduced me, but the like rules I didn't get into right away. If that makes mm-hmm. sense. But I did right on. It wasn't that long. I mean for the tabletop game rules, yes. Like I'd definitely gone through this and it was like several years later before I came across the first edition core book. And that was over a decade before the C twenty came out. So Yeah, I mean this is I have a very vivid memory of sitting in the car while my mother was in Ikea for about two hours and just sitting with this book and reading it 
devouring it. Not like a red cap, though, just with my eyes and mind and heart. I remember actually going, oh my goodness, that's a picture of Jack Nicholson at the red cap. I get the description (laughs) from the first day I encountered this. (laughs) Interesting. But yeah, it's definitely, I mean, it's an iconic book on my shelf and in my memory and very well beloved. Mm -hmm. So I have deep affection for it. Mine's so well beloved that I think I might need a new copy because the spine's falling apart. Yeah, I could probably use a new one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But in general, and I think this is a good segue into talking about general comments on the physical book itself, the design of it, not even just for Changeling, for any role-playing book, I think it's one of the best designed books. Just, Mm -hmm. it's elegant, it's crisp, it's in full color before that was a popular thing, you know. So yeah, I'd say, and of like the Changeling core books, I think it's the best designed and laid out. Mm-hmm. They made the very sensible decision to make the knotwork border less chunky as it was in first edition, and I mm-hmm. think that freed up a lot of room for them to play with, and it shows. There's a lot more mm-hmm. text. It's a lot denser and fuller of description, which helps, and it really feels like, in terms of its tone. First edition feels like they made an outline, the first edition core book at least, they made an outline and they have these general statements about specific items and it doesn't really take its time to create flourishes like this edition does. First edition mm-hmm. feels like you're learning a game and second edition feels like you're entering a world and that yeah. distinction is really beautiful to me. I, this will sound weird. The first edition book feels like a grump or like someone... <laughs> kind of falling to the mists and this book is like very wilder yeah well and i i can understand why that is to some extent because you know the first edition is always just the fact ma'am like that kind of here's the basics we're not gonna embellish too much yet it's still imaginative of course but yeah and there's also like pieces where it's just more depressing the first book not in a bad way but it's like yeah very wistful this one's very I mean, it has banality system-wise. It hits you hard with that. But like the book in the art feels like mm-hmm. full-bore glamour. Oh, yeah. The art in this is just outstanding. Mm-hmm. Anyway. So, yeah. Do we want to... Should we start turning pages and see what happens? Sounds good. Right from the start, compared with first edition, we have some differences here because first edition started with their little never, never grow up preface. Mm-hmm. which I didn't mind it, but it, it did kind of jar me a little bit to see that. So in the second edition, instead, we have like a standard introductory kind of thing. Yeah. Or maybe the first edition is also following the Bedlam, because in comparison, uh, there's <laughs> no large section of photos before you yeah. get to the introduction, which I'm of two minds on that. <laughs> I think it's more effective to not have it more useful, but it's like, yeah. oh, it's not as charming. I like having a signed photo of Dr. Bashir in my opening to a role-playing book, but I don't really need it. And I Mm -hmm. think that the second edition is more effective in getting you into the world much more quickly because we have sort of the summary of what it's about, who changelings are, what storytelling is, what role-playing is, um, the structure of the book, the lexicon. There was a lively discussion on the discord about whether or not some of these terms are still used like chummery and fancy pants yeah 
but like the first paragraph of each introductions i think is, is illustrative of the whole i don't i'm not going to do like text side by side text in general but the first edition is like changeling a storytelling game about the dreaming it's about make-believe come to life but imagination taking fruit yeah the gates to the realms of fairy are closed yeah so first edition plays into the playing make-believe childhood is this even really happening this is urban fantasy second edition like it's very you are a fairy (laughs) like this is a magical world right and i think that's what i mean when i say first edition feels like you're learning a game second feels like you're entering the world Mm -hmm. that that exact kind of feeling yeah it also kind of turns up weirdly when you look at the epigraphs something i noticed was that first edition was very heavy on things like traditional ballads, prog rock, epic poems and songs and stuff. Whereas second edition has like obscure poems and quotes from Neil Gaiman and urban fantasy stuff. So it does seem to be leaning more into that. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm thinking about, because this came out in August, 1997, which was two full years after first edition. And I'm thinking like, was there some kind of massive change in the fantasy landscape that I'm forgetting about? Sandman ended. That's the only thing I can think of. I'm like, okay, music changed pretty significantly in that two years, but... I suppose, but yeah, I I don't know. I think it's just, it's a different angle that could have always been there, but they're Mm -hmm. just kind of changing their focus a little bit, I suppose, and I'm I'm here for it, so... Well, I think think you have to do that every new edition or else it's like, why are you bothering? You want want to focus. Changeling's a big game. Both are still in this book and both are in the other book. Yeah. Well, and when we get to chapter one, which hopefully will be momentarily, I have yep. uh, thoughts with a capital thought mm-hmm. about this. Overall, though, I think it does what a good edition update should do, where it takes that basic skeleton from the first edition and sort of fleshes it out with all of the useful bits from some of the core supplements in the previous edition. Mm-hmm. So they reference Nobles the Shining Host, the Shadow Court, the Immortalized Trilogy, and then in this copy, Dreams and Nightmares, which came out after the core book. So I'm wondering if they added that in some of the later printings or just that they knew that Dreams and Nightmares was going to come out almost immediately. Yeah. But the, the stuff from those books, as well as some of the core bits from like the Enchanted and the Player's Guide kind of work their way into this core book. Yeah. And, and one bit, just a side thing, if, if you're like me and you got the pdf for this from drive through rpg years ago i just got the most recent one it's full color now everything's really not crisp and nice looking and there's hyperlinks in it when they reference things you can click it and the thing that it's talking about it, at least i think you would if you weren't weird like me and using an open source pdf viewer on linux mm. but <laughs> that happens yeah but it's a very it's a very if you've read World of Darkness games, White Wolf World of Darkness games, it is an introduction to a World of Darkness game. Very much. Yep. And unusually, we get a prelude story after the introduction, mm-hmm. which is beautifully, beautifully illustrated by Rebecca Gway. Or at least I think it's Rebecca Gway. It certainly looks like. Yes, it is. Okay. What did you think of the prelude story? It's uh, it's very long. <laughs> It um, it it's, it's every t- I've I've read it many, a number of times, and it's it ticks all the boxes of introducing you to Changeling. I don't know, maybe it's maybe the glamour yeah. has been sucked out of it for me reading it too many times over the years. But how about you? I mean, 
it certainly meant more to me as a 13 year old than it does now. I'll admit that. Mm. <laughs> but I think it's still a beautiful, beautiful introduction because it, yeah, it does backdoor in a lot of the themes and concepts of the game. It shows you mm-hmm. some of the kiths. It shows you chimerical reality versus the autumn world. There's an autumn oh, yeah. person's stepmother. There's nobles and commoners. It does all of that. And importantly to me, none of it is grounded in the meta plot. It's just, mm-hmm. it could be any town in Concordia. It could be really any two kids. So for anyone who hasn't read it, it's like the story of basically two childlings, one of whom becomes a troll knight and then his issue best friend. And they're, you know, the troll knight mm-hmm. is the protagonist, has adventures, etc. And for me at the time, when I first read it, it spoke to a lot of what I was feeling as a 13-year-old. So, mm. I was know. an 18-year-old when I first read it. That's probably ah. Or was I 17? Maybe 17 That's or 18. That's probably part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and it was, I was, I had just changed schools and I had just mm-hmm. like left my best friend behind who I used to play Pendragon with and all of this, you know, talk fantasy yeah. with. So, And I think I had also already been playing Changeling before I read it too. Well, there you go. So yeah, um, I, I'm sure that that informs one's experience with it. That yeah. being said, I think it's a great opening. And I think it's more useful to get people into the mindset of what playing Changeling is all yeah. about than an equally long set of flat lay photographs with pages from Thomas to King David. So, <laughs> Yeah, that I can just imagine that the other one I'd be like, what am I looking at i'm still like that actually right. but like if i had no if that's my introduction to changeling i don't know what i would have thought yeah, yeah this this definitely tells you what changeling is very well yeah i'm glad i read the second edition first mm-hmm. so anyway and then chapter one yeah chapter one there's lots of art great art we'll just but we'll just go to chapter one we'll just say the art's great for the moment <laughs> I'm very pleased that the Deterlizy Kith portraits that open each chapter are actually in alphabetical order in this edition. Mm. I don't know why, it just pleases me. (laughs) Okay. So chapter one, it's interesting. These first couple pages of chapter one do more to kind of set the tone than, well, I guess the the prelude story does too. But so you you open with a block quote from The Silver Chair by C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. and nothing else on the title page. And then the next two pages are that, I think of it as iconic, I don't know how many other people do, but you mm-hmm. have the world of darkness on one side and the enchanted world on the other side, and it's yeah. this sort of two sides of the same changeling's face, one is crying, one is grinning, the yeah. muted colors on one side and the bright colors on the other. As many As often as people complain about Changeling is not part of the world of darkness. I think this is the strongest mm-hmm. evidence for their claim because yeah. it does really feel like you're you're playing in an entirely different setting as you go through this part. I think, too, the art here both works and does a big disservice. It works for somebody who's doing a careful reading of the book. And it works great. Mm-hmm. For someone who's flipping through the book, it gives the completely wrong impression so if you look at the text on the enchanted world it's got like all this stuff like this is, this is next to a picture of like happy stuff and balloons and smiling face and all that right and it's like one of the lines is pushed to the wall by terror a child creates an imaginary fanged horror that stalks and frightens always on the verge of pouncing i'm like that's not happy <laughs> balloons like <laughs> it's the dreaming right 
and and it's it's a neat contrast but if you miss it yeah the art doesn't convey that without the text i guess yeah that's fair that's fair that being said there's other art in the book that certainly gets it across chapter one though has yeah well there's the bear in the top hat yeah is there actually a bear holding balloons or is that just like a mix of the whole earlier balloon <laughs> people talking about it with a bear holding balloons i don't think there is a bear holding balloons anywhere not in this chapter, but I think elsewhere there might be. We'll have to keep an eye okay. out for him. I do also compare this to the opening of the first edition, which is very grounded in, you are in the world of darkness. Here is the gothic mm-hmm. punk setting and how to apply it to Changeling. So mm-hmm. it's a departure from that as well. So they're, they're definitely on their own terms here. Something else that occurred to me as I was going through this was that this book in terms of core books, it came out between Wraith 2nd Edition and Vampire Revised. So mm-hmm. <laughs> it was kind of yeah. book bookended by these two very bleak settings. And it just makes me think, would people have given it as much shit if it had come out after Mage as originally planned? Hmm. But anyway, are there any other bits that stood out to you from the first chapter that are particularly noteworthy, even for current players, perhaps? Um, I mean, it does, I think, a good job of explaining everything. It does have something about how Chimera can physically interact with the autumn world. I thought that was some like, okay, there's justification here, but only if unenchanted people aren't there. And that's the ambiguous thing. And I don't even know what first edition ever says. So just a little bit of a note. First edition specifically says Chimera never interact with the physical yeah. world. Like, okay. Yeah. Direct quote, you know. But then also second edition, this book, later on, it says Chimera cannot interact with the f-. so it's contradictory within the book and it kind yeah. of gives examples to support either side. And I just don't like there's a sidebar in here on page thirty eight of tunnels and doorways and chimerical dungeons. And I don't like yeah. it. You can't make chimerical tunnels and I'm like and then they talk about it being underwater and I'm like, does that mean there's like bubbles of anyway. Well, and that's also the the source of trolls have to duck when they walk through a doorway. Yeah, Yeah, the metaphysics of it are like, this is the metaphysics that are most banal to me. Like, they make the most logical sense, but I don't think they make it fun. Yeah. That being said, it is important to nail that down as quickly and thoroughly as possible oh, so yeah. i understand why they're kicking off with explaining it, so. no no i just think what they nailed down i don't like i think nailing down a different thing would have been better yeah i think i think it's good that they nailed it down this is especially compared to first edition a lot more clear on how things work i just would have preferred a different way for things to work that's probably what i'm saying All right. in some places at least personally i'm okay with it overall but I I accept Mm -hmm. the opinion. (laughs) Yeah. Something like the chimera can interact with the real world thing, though. I I do find there are several examples in this book of kind of throwaway lines that aren't strong enough to carry the weight of the arguments they open. Mm -hmm. And and that does kind of bug me. Like, with the chimera bit, I mean... What does it mean for you to be able to... A chimera can open a door... A chimera can hold a sword, assuming there's no uninitiated morals around. You can ride a chimerical horse, but if a chimera like slashes your chest, it's chimerical damage only, no real. Yeah. 
what happens if the chimera slashes the door? Does it hurt the door? Does it chimerical damage to the door? But you can't do that because you can't make a hole in things. Can you make a hole in a changeling? Right. Does it leave claw marks? Can you have a chimerical hole in a changeling? That is unclear. Seems like both ways here. I'm gonna I'm gonna leave that question aside. Um, mm-hmm. But also, like there are other parts of the book where banality is kind of presented as this ambient quality, and I'm thinking, well, mm-hmm. shouldn't that impact a chimera's ability to interact with the real world? Or it raises yeah. questions like, if a changeling calls on their banality, so there's an example here where they say, oh, if a changeling is running away from a chimera and slams the door behind them, the chimera can still come through it if there's no mortals on on the changeling side of the door. And I'm like, well, what if the changeling kind of calls upon their banality? Can they stop that door from well, opening? No, if like, there's no what mortals are the limits? on the other end of the door, unless they're low banality mortals. Which just well what? right yeah or enchanted or whatever yeah well no but it says like if they're dreamers yeah. if you're an artist yeah but then like can a chimera send an email to a mortal or can they can they call someone on a phone yeah right can they do it around mortals who can't sense them whether because yeah. they're blind or deaf or just for you know the chimera is silent like if the if the mortal isn't paying attention can the chimera still yeah. do their things is seeing disbelieving in a sense. Or if they're sleeping, that's an important question, actually. Right. Yeah. So levels. it opens, there are all of these questions. And to just say that one sentence, Chimera can interact with the real world yeah. so long as mortals aren't looking, whatever it is. It's like, well, that's going to lead to years worth of arguments on internet forums. So It did. <laughs> it still did. does. <laughs> and first edition had the advantage of not having to worry about that yet. So Chimera get like, two paragraphs and that's it but yeah anyway the rest of the chapter though i think is i hesitate to use the word straightforward but it knows what it's about yeah there are a few fun little tidbits like where is it on page 44 i think they're talking about freeholds and bale fires and sort of royal bale fires being used to reignite the bale fires of a kingdom and it mentions that Ireland claims as its great bale fire, the ever-burning heart of Emenmacha, freehold of King Finn of Ulster. So as though I needed another reason to absolutely adore the Ulster metaplot, now we have that, which I don't recall from Court of All Kings, but that makes me want to play an Ulster game all the more. It also makes me wonder mm-hmm. if you can cross the border with Ignis Vesta post-Brexit. But I digress. Well, no, I mean, that hasn't been resolved yet with the border agreement. Anyway, it's true. Um, the Balefire backstop. Yeah. Oh, that would just kill it with banality. Yep. Especially in this edition. That On that page 44, that just reminds me, I'm very confused about Freehold's bigger on the inside than outside. It's like, okay, no, it is only in the near dreaming, but it's like, oh, you can only have TARDISes in the dreaming but, or doorways to the dreaming. Yep. But you can still have it bigger on the inside than outside in the dreaming, I think. But maybe. Or is it just spilling out into the dreaming? I think it's whatever you need it to be. Yeah. The dreaming can accommodate that kind of thing much more easily than uh, the autumn world. You know, I think you're right. This is another example of the, you're not just being vague, you're giving details, but you're not giving sufficient details to back it up. Like to, yeah. If it was vague statements and they're just whimsical and and open interpretation, but this feels like very factual statements that just don't have enough meat. Which is weird because there is so much meat in this book for so many things. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. But we get information about Traz and the Dreaming and mm-hmm. wild portals appear, I think, for the first time here. Yeah. 
Weirdly, so this is, I as I was reading this chapter and kind of looking at the first edition, and by the way, all the chapters are kind of rearranged uh, relative to the first edition. Mm-hmm. So first edition occasionally seems to kind of use the term Arcadia semi-synonymously with the dreaming. And then I don't think in first edition they ever actually use the terms near dreaming, far dreaming, or deep dreaming. Mm. Like I went looking for it and I couldn't find it. And I'm like, am I missing something? Was it in but a I'm, later book or was it only in here? I, I mean, Nobles the Shining Host kind of makes mention, but like all I know is that I went looking for it in first edition and didn't really find direct references to it. And here, I mean, it's really thoroughly described. And we know mm-hmm. that only a month or two later, Dreams and Nightmares came out and it was even more thoroughly described. So maybe that was one of the big changes that they made. Yeah, I think I think definitely just we've said this before, like it's not like each book is written in serial complete and they've completely finished one book and then come out with the next, like start work on the next. It yeah. definitely was developed in parallel with the with Dreams and Nightmares. Yeah. I almost feel like Dreams and Nightmares was like an overflow book just for this chapter. Yeah. There are references to the as yet unnamed Augman where birth rates and frailties get ramped up as you go deeper into the dreaming, which then were formalized in dreams and nightmares as well. So, yeah. But overall, I think it's a good place to start, even if the execution of it isn't always as solid as it could be. Mm-hmm. Yep. And there's a lot of solid places in this. It's not like it's all bad. Or yeah. Anything. It's most, I'd say it's the majority of it's solid. I'd rather have a solid foundation that leaves me with questions than being confused with even more questions. So, mm-hmm. but that's chapter one. Yeah. And then we have chapter two, a world of dreams. Maybe that's the, the world that we're operating in here. Instead of a world of darkness game, it's a world of dreams game. Oh yeah. I'm into it. Dreams can be dark. Um, yes. We get an, expansion of the historical points about mm-hmm. the role of changelings and how they interact with mortals as well as the history of the fae and really it's again similar to first edition but just expanded they just every event of note gets more text in second edition yeah. so we have the mythic age we have the sundering i think they incorporated a few things from sub first edition supplements too absolutely yeah. into it that were yeah. And importantly, we get timeline stuff, which I don't think we get in first edition. So they specifically call out the Inquisition in 1233 as bringing the Sundering to its culmination and then point to the Black Plague for the Shattering. Mm-hmm. I do kind of want to run a Dark Ages Fae game now set in 1233, but that's part of my whole pet theory about the nature of Dark Ages Fae as a historical thing. Anyway, separate conversation. Um yes. Oh, I have thoughts on Dark Ages Fate, but that's a yeah, again separate conversation. <laughs> that's that's several episodes away. Yeah. Many episodes. I do think that Immortal Eyes, weirdly, maybe the novels even more than the setting books, kind of helped give voice to the differences of opinion about Fae history that would be present among the Fae themselves. And second edition was able to kind of incorporate those into this more nuanced description of fey history and society than first edition was even able to because first edition it was like i mean they they wrote their timeline and that's what they had to work with whereas after first edition had been running for a while you could have 
groups with different ideologies among the Kithane. And that I think is at least bubbling under the surface of the the way that it's written here. So something I found really cool was that in the interregnum section on page 56, they mentioned that the changelings were kind of going around with theater troops and stuff. And that's where they got terms for the arts and the realms, which I thought was kind of neat. And then we have a thoroughly interesting sidebar about the changeling way. Yeah. Or at least I think it's interesting. <laughs> I think so too. Uh, we also have a, cause remember, I remember noticing in, in the first edition core book, the she, like it's stating that she are just aren't possessing human bodies. They've like actually physically sent it back. And I'm just in this book. If you look at like, there's a paragraph that spans page 57 to 58 and I'm very, I'm, I'm also confused by the wording on this one. It's like, they're switching bodies with mortals, sending the mortals back to Arcadia. And this is so they can wear the mortal bodies? Basically. <laughs> so it's both versions? Okay. In the same paragraph. Well, so the Changeling Way sidebar very specifically says that the first reincarnators like bonded fully with the human souls, whether they were infants or very young children, almost like the fae soul and the human soul dissolved into each other to create a third type, which then entered the cycle of reincarnation. Yeah. And then in that paragraph about the she, it says that some of them do that, but some of them also just hop into an adult and bump the adult out, the adult soul. So that yeah. it's interesting. Well, well actually then, it, it, it implies it's also like, in the sidebar, it talks about the first Earthbound disguise themselves as humans, right? Yeah, yeah, And yeah, then yeah. I'm like, oh, it sounds like they disguise themselves as... Yeah, anyway. Yeah. So I like having the Changeling Way be ambiguous enough that you can go in lots of different directions for whatever purposes in your game. Yep. And then we get the Resurgence and the Accordance War, a lot of which is just the same information. Um, the Battle of Manhattan part is like exactly the same text as in first edition. As a linguistic nitpick, I'm unreasonably annoyed by True Thomas saying, Behold, thou dost look upon thy king to a group of people. Because you would not use thou with a group of people. <laughs> Thomas would have also been speaking Middle English, not Elizabethan. But in any case. Well, yeah, but also she wouldn't do the great vowel shift yet. So that, that would be, be very under, hard to understand. It's true. So dost look upon thy king, or I don't know how they... Um, then we get Nature of the Fae, and an epigraph by a six-year-old poet, apparently, which I think is probably a first for any World of Darkness book to have a six-year-old quoted. What did you think about these sort of descriptions of the chrysalis and the dream dance and the initiation of a changeling into Fae society? This is burned into my brain since from when I was first pouring through this section back in the day. And nice. I'm like, this is how this is how it all works. The dream dance. And like I've said, like dream dance to changeling players. And I'm like, what are you talking about? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And a lot of this too, I think, is adopted from the relevant sections in the player's guide. Because mm -hmm. you remember that one chapter in the player's guide, like, goes way deep into the process of chrysalis yeah some of it might be also from uh like fosters and stuff i wonder how much of that i'd have to look through to see what's player's guide and what's enchanted the enchanted but... yeah. yeah 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 well and the grip of time part i think is 
heavily indebted to The Enchanted as well, where it talks about how changelings age. And as a reminder for anyone who's only played C20, we are still operating in the era of changeling fey mean being pegged to the age of the mortal seeming. There's a brief sidebar on the Shirain and Mm -hmm. the effects of aging on both the mortal seeming and the fey mean, which I kind of liked. I liked that, I mean, putting aside any thoughts about the age um, alignment, I like that they kind of talk about how you know, you, the fey mean isn't unchanging. It does age just as a mortal face does, in some cases even more pronounced. Mm-hmm. What else? What else? What else? We got the same sort of key topics that we got in first editions, early chapters about banality, glamour, and the mists. And it's just beautiful. <laughs> like, I could just read this all day. I just love these descriptions yeah. that they have. It's true that this chapter is kind of an info dump because they're throwing lots of information all at once. And do you think mm-hmm. to some extent that this gives Changeling a steeper learning curve than other World of Darkness games? Because there are lots of sort of asymmetric disparate elements to keep track of at once. Unlike Vampire, for example, where just everything comes back to blood and how much of it do you have? Uh, you know, I think <laughs> like... there's two World of Darkness games, Vampire and Hunter the Reckoning that this is a steeper learning curve. I think all the other World of Darkness games, it's pretty similar in the learning curve. That's fair. Well, Wraith, I have no idea, because I haven't... I mean, Wraith, uh, my sense is that, yes, Wraith is just as complex. Mage, I think, can be, but doesn't have to be. Yeah. You can play Mage just as a straight-up, you know, wizard school clone or whatever. Or you could just say everything comes back to arguing about what a worldview permits and or a sphere combination permits. But with Changeling, it's like you have to kind of keep track of the nature of your own mortality or immortality as the situation demands. Glamour versus banality, mortals versus Changelings and the mists. Like it's, it's kind of operating on a lot of different Uh, levels. Okay. Changelings up there. Wraith's more complicated. Okay. Werewolf and Changeling seem though pretty similar level complicatedness yeah mage i would say the curve is in the mechanics more than Mm -hmm. the setting yes although changing doesn't have simple magic mechanics either that's true but note that i mean we're on well at least in my pdf i'm on page 67 and there has not been a single mechanic yet yeah i think there's like a reference to kenning being a thing and it's like see page 100 and whatever so we're, we've yeah. so far... And they got it right how a ta- talent works. So that's a step up over M20. <laughs> Yay. Oh, yeah, here it is. The Kenning talent. See page 140. There you go. Yep. Oh, if I go hover over it, it shows me now a, the Kenning talent like on my PDF reader. <laughs> hey. So then we get the summary of the kiths and the houses. There is an interesting sidebar here where it says the, quote, other houses... And it mentions the Unsealy Ones, which had been introduced in the Shadow Court at this point, as well as a 14th house, House Skara. So there were always 14 from the start, which I don't know that I actually remembered. I think that was even in the first edition. Or it was somewhere in the first edition. It might not have been the core book. There was somewhere talking about 14 houses, I remember, when, in one of our episodes. But ne- not named. But It just makes me think about how saturated with glamour these books are because the mists sink in every time I put them down for like more than a day. So. <laughs> yep. Ah, but if you, yeah, if you go too far into this book, you definitely get bedlam. 
Yeah. One quibble that I have is that it's even more ambiguous than in first edition about whether or not the oath circle is meant to be the default alignment of changelings. So like Mm. in the character creation section later on, there's all this information about how did your oath circle meet? Like these questions you're supposed to ask. And yet on the character sheet, I mean, it says Motley, like you write Mm -hmm. the name of your Motley, not your oath circle. And this is important because the oath circles have mechanical differences. They can share glamour. They can support each other's cantrips, stuff like that. So it's a little unclear. And that starts here when it's describing them. First edition does this too, though. So yeah, this description is still the first edition motley being a, the common, almost the commoner equivalent to houses as opposed to player character Mm -hmm. group, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I think oath circle is still the, what you would call a group of PCs, usually the default, at least at this point, is about like coder. It's the coterie equivalent, I think. And then we get into the courts. What was once called the Concord is now called the Compact, where the courts keep their peace. And overall, I think the information is pretty much the same, with the one fairly large change that, thanks to the Shadow Court book, the Shadow Court is now not just some kind of weird, unsilly tradition at Samhain, but a full fledged kind of secret society embedded within the Unseelie Court. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of yep. present here. And then we get a mage term. How did you feel about the change from the feudal system to the medieval paradigm? I don't think it's the mage definition of paradigm. Though. Like, pa- the mage didn't invent the <laughs> word paradigm. <laughs> Fair. But I can't, I can't see the word paradigm in a World of Darkness book and not immediately think of mage. Yeah. So... Well, okay, we should, well, it's before M20, so it's like the medieval focus in M20, no. Um, <laughs> I think the word paradigm is fine here. I think it works. And basically, it's just a European feudalism outline. Although, it's the dream of medieval feudalism. Let's not get yelled at by people who say what feudalism is. <laughs> it's the Society of Creative Anachronism dream of feudalism. No, nobody votes in the people on this one, but yes. <laughs> Something I find interesting is that there's a note about the Xi, where is it? The Xi nobles who control fairy society were absent for the rise of democratic government and many modern political trends make no sense to these traditionalists. And I'm thinking like, before they left Earth, the Xi were immortals who were, you know, probably at least centuries old, you know, walking Mm -hmm. around Earth doing whatever. Did they miss ancient Greece? Did they miss Italy? Did they miss all of these other examples of non-aristocratic feudal societies that were not so far away from them so i feel like it's yeah i mean i mean a represent a modern democracy is i can't think of anything it's like a weird hybrid of a roman republic and a greek democracy though like that didn't really exist back then i guess so it's just it it seems like a, a cop out to try and justify the very specific expression of government that they use I don't know. I, I feel like you can poke enough holes yeah, in it to have... You're a mortal being and it's the thing you got recently. Yeah. I don't know. And then they're like, oh, the feudal... Fey feudalism isn't quite as rigid as earthly feudal systems. I'm like, mm, all right. <laughs> but whatever. As the dream of <laughs> earthly feudal systems. Yeah. And again, a lot of this is just first edition, but more text, mm-hmm. so... I hadn't really, I mean, as, as we read on, we get sort of the 
commoners and nobles, liege and vassal, rank and privilege, like all these sort of aspects of the feudal system. And I had not really paid attention to the treasures for each of the titles. So like the royal treasures, the ducal treasures, etc. And looking at them, I mean, those are story hooks waiting to happen. Kings mm-hmm. and queens have scepters that allow them to draw glamour from any hearths of balefire in the kingdom. It's just, it's interesting that they have these. Yeah. <laughs> and there's notes about like, if a queen suffers from great depression due to an unrequited love, her land may know constant rains and flooding. An older king's aloofness brings an icy chill to his kingdom, while a young queen's unruly passion results in mayhem and chaos throughout her domain. So you have mm-hmm. a lot of that. The ruler embodies the land and vice versa mentality, yeah. which I like. I like that. It's I like that too. Yeah. And it definitely has the, the one at the top has the, the vast, has vassalage very clearly in this. Yeah. And I like, I like that for changelings. We can, we can again get into like it being overly appro- applied to historical societies, but yeah. Yeah. We've got some oaths. We've got some, ahem, courtly love. <laughs> they do collapse the cliques down. So the cliques, which I think in our first edition core book discussion, I was kind of like, oh, I don't remember these. And it's um, sort of buried in in this chapter, but they are still here. The cliques mm-hmm. with particular tastes and glamour gathering. Yeah. I was learning recently about the Roman customs that some of this is based on too. That was interesting, but other yeah yeah festivals yay what do you think of the dates on these festivals uh as a changeling player or as an occasional person who hangs out in pagan circles yeah either both do you know what i'll i'll take the fifth and say if anyone wants to deeply know my thoughts on the dates of these festivals there's a supplement you can purchase on the storyteller Mm -hmm. (laughs) yeah so yeah it's fine most of this stuff is aligned with the first edition version. They dropped the inclusion of quests in this chapter, and the first edition one kind of talks more about autumn people and Nunyi and everything. But yeah, mm-hmm. overall, it's the meat of Fae society, and it remained fairly consistent between editions, I would say. Yeah. So yeah. Thoughts on chapter Ooh, two? This has... This also has a marriage sometimes lasting 13 full moons. I don't remember that one from Changeling, but... Oh, yeah. Like the hand-fasting-y thing. Now, I remember a year and a day, but not 13 full moons. Just, anyway. Let me get knocker pictures. Knocker pictures. I like these knocker pictures. Because <laughs> they have a knocker phone. Yeah, so now we get into the Kithane. Chapter 3 mm-hmm. in 2nd edition, chapter 6 in 1st edition, for mm-hmm. some reason. And... I'm a little bit confused why it got back into Childlings versus Wilders versus Grumps. How do you mean got back into? I guess it makes sense. They go back over because they talked about it before for what's a Childling, what's a Wilder, what's a Grump. And now we have what's a Childling, what's a Wilder, what's a Grump. But I guess that works as a reference book. Yeah. The traits are the same, I think. Yeah. And that I think those traits, the tempers associated with each seeming are the first mechanics that we get in this book so page 87 mm-hmm. that's where you get your first mechanic so then the kith write-ups so here i was sort of very keenly looking at the differences and 
can I can I just kind of rush through these? I don't know if that's useful yeah. or not. <laughs> There's a big difference in one in one yeah. the, across a lot of them. Yeah. Overall, the descriptions are are longer and more fleshed out, but they do recycle a fair amount of text, and they replace. They had used the term bonds to describe birthrights and frailties. That is now gone. They added specific characters to voice the stereotypes each kith has about all of the others, which I think is a sensible choice. And overall, I just like the art better for these because it's more, mm -hmm. you know, the first edition kith art was fine, but it looked kind of like quick fashion sketches or something. And these are like more mm -hmm. uh, reflectively drawn, painted even portraits. There's a big overview is they introduce the whole like, ones that basically the way i think of it is like chimerical effects versus weird or or maybe oh yes 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 yeah that that's new to this book i think yeah so it specifically says the inherent strengths and weaknesses of the kith birthrights that have apparent physical effects such as a troll's mighty strength she's breathtaking beauty or puka's animal features do not function around mortals mm -hmm. so there are exceptions that are explicitly mentioned in the write-ups, but yeah, by default, those extra attribute dots, that's only in changeling form. Which raises yeah. the question, <laughs> again, going back to the metaphysics, it's like, if a troll has strength six in fey form, but only strength four in mortal form, does that mean like they can lift chimerically heavy objects or lift heavier chimera than it's like weird weird stuff can they do that yeah. when mortals are around all of these questions that get kind of opened up out of like that. D if they're if they're if they're doing a chimerical battle in front of unenchanted mortals and they roll right. for damage on their chimerical damage right. do they <laughs> get the extra strength <laughs> by the book no but the she get the appearance it's like what uh, yeah. yeah it's weird i don't like it i like the the first ed and c20 version better where you just get it anyway. i agree I would be comfortable with the cap on five dots still being a thing. But anyway, mm -hmm. that's a separate discussion. Um, yeah. I do think uh, this is maybe a, a point at which to mention out of all of the additions, and by all I mean three and a half maybe, depending on how you want to slice it. Second edition is probably the harshest, both in terms of stuff like that, the way banality works, well, maybe not the way banality works. First edition was pretty awful too. But, uh, but it is the magic systems. The magic systems like it's difficult to do a lot of things. Well, so was first. All right, you know, I take it back. First edition was pretty. <laughs> the does first edition? I don't think first edition typically had you like dealing with difficulty thirteen rolls and things like that. Right. One thing they didn't add, which I'm confused by because we already had Kith Book Slua, is they don't add the ability to like talk to ghosts in here. They have it under the ghosts or the wraith section in the antagonist bit. Or at least oh. they say Slua can see them. Of course. So. Okay, yeah. I've thought so much about this. Also, the troll's shirt. I've just thought so much about that over <laughs> the years. I think it's a nice <laughs> So can I give a quick rundown of how the birthrights and frailties changed from one edition to the next? And other, other yeah. tidbits that I noticed. All right. So real mm -hmm. quick and speedy. Boggins, craftwork, 
has been updated from taking less than a third of the time that it would take a mortal to one third of the time. Social dynamics has been split into silly and unsealy tendencies, and Call of the Needy gets a proper difficulty. The issue are pretty much the same, and again, the implication of they're not the African kith is spelled out pretty strongly here, and yet never strongly supported in the rest of the game line, which still raises questions for me. And also the artwork. (laughs) Well, right, exactly, yeah. They also note, though, that their homeland is in Chaldea, which is in northern Iraq, and I kind of did a double take, like, wait, what? I'm not sure where that's coming from, but I'm curious now. So, yeah. Otherwise, their birthrights and frailty are basically the same. Knockers, we'll get into this a little bit more with Kithbook Knockers in terms of their awkward mythic origins, but there's a note that they get their name by knocking to check on the quality of an item and or the slang use of knocking on people, as in insulting them, which is better than their mythic origins in Cornwall, but it, it again still kind of seems like a post hoc justification for their name, I guess. Yeah, well, I'm not... Well, we can check. We can check. We'll have to check with in that episode. But I don't think they have that same origin as they will get in the Kith book. Like, right? Know, yeah. Maybe I, I didn't see it as strong. In. Yeah. Yeah. This is sort of previewing a little bit. That's one of the things that's irritating about the Kith book is that none of the origin stuff that's mentioned in there is present here. So. Um, yeah, I mean, anyway. it is kind of like. Do they say Slewer or Russian in this book? They do. Too, but... They do say that in here. Okay. So, <laughs> okay. Because Kissbook Slua had come out. So, but anyway, so with Forge Chimera, there's an implication that other Kithane can't make Chimera, even though that's not entirely true, but it's ambiguous. The fix at birthright does work around mortals, but then the knockers have lost their can't botch crafts or security rolls bonus that they had in first edition. I assume that was a typo. Mm-hmm. Or, you know. For the Puka, the confidant birthright has had its attribute role change from manipulation to perception, which I think suits them better. And then there's more depth mm-hmm. to their lies frailty, as there should be. Yeah. The red caps get more specific mechanics for dark appetite, but then, especially in this edition, it opens the question of can they use it around mortals or not? Because, you know, it's unclear. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, most of the other ones say. Like in the other examples, it explicitly says the other way. This doesn't say. Also, this has the picture of Jack Nicholson, the red cap. Yes. And he's holding an axe, so that's even more. The satyrs, it gets rid of the Gift of Pan hangover note that's mentioned in the first edition. And their physical prowess does work around mortals, so they do get that bonus stamina. Whereas for the she... Their on beauty birthright specifically only works on the enchanted unless they call upon the weird. And damn, did I forget how powerful this birthright was. Yow. Yep. The banality's curse frailty has an interesting addendum about how they can switch legacies from moonrise to moonrise or sunset to sunset to stave off their fits of depression. And I can't recall anyone ever actually like role playing that or that coming up in a in a book anywhere else, but I. I don't know. It's interesting. It's come up occasionally in LARPs that I've both played and run, but most players don't, or STs don't really even think about it. Yeah. Then the Slua are Russian, of course. 
They cannot use squirm in the presence of the unenchanted, but their sharpened senses birthright has had its drawback of being stunned by loudness or brightness removed, which is good. In fact, they can't even botch alertness rolls now. Yeah. Uh, I think they had already had that. In... Oh, okay. Yeah, stealth and alertness is still... Well, I think the change to the slua also is that their, their whisper, their frailties also less intense around unenchanted mortals. I don't think that was in first edition. Yes, I think that is. Yeah. So in second edition, it says to mortals, they are soft spoken. And then for trolls with interesting shirts, their strength specifically does not work around mortals. And there's an interesting note about how if a troll's trust is betrayed, they will be filled with anger and must roll willpower difficulty eight to avoid becoming violent, which was not in the first edition. So basically they've given them a frenzy mechanic. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Really don't want trolls of House Gwydion. No. That would be unpleasant. And speaking of houses, we then get write-ups for the five Seely ones, which are interesting because in addition to the information about what they stand for politically, there's this note about how the Shi were exiled because of their membership in the houses, which I don't think was really present in the first edition core book. Maybe in Nobles the Shining Host there was more of that. But it kind of makes me think mm -hmm. if all 14 houses have been exiled at this point, who's even left in Arcadia? <laughs> so. Hmm. Interesting questions. Maybe not the she. The commoners and the tithed are running the show. Or someone else. Du, du, du. <sighs> in any case, uh, the rest of the text is fairly similar to first edition with one major addition, which is the high lords of each house are kind of given write-ups, and they're wonderful NPCs, and I wish they came up anywhere else in the game. So, mm -hmm. And they also are referred to as the high lords of the fallen world, which I think is great. It says, nine lords watch over the earthbound houses of the Shi, five are of the Seely Court, three are of the Unseely Court, and one is a madman who claims to speak for the Shadow Court. No idea who that would be. Presumably the mm -hmm. House Baylord? I don't know. And then that's it for not only Chapter 3, but also Book 1. I feel like we should mention the frame story that occurs at the divisions of the three books. Because that's, yeah. I think, a nice touch. The chapters are grouped into Book 1, Book 2, Book 3, Childing, Wilder, and Grump. And in first edition, it's just kind of these atmospheric pieces with stained glass drawings or whatever. But then in second edition, it's like a frame story and it seems like it's the same character growing up and celebrating their birthday in a different way at each stage of life. So as a childling, it's this very like excited child having a birthday thing. The wilder is like pissed and going to a punk club or something. And then in the grump section that opens the next and the last group of chapters She's become a mother and her daughter is presumably going to go through her own mm -hmm. chrysalis and she's like fostering that. Um, but it has the line at the end, yeah, I still like birthdays. They're a sign that we're still alive. And I feel like that's one of the quintessential changeling sentences. So. I just I also really like having a picture of a satyr in an apron. Yeah. Satyrs can be Boggins too. It's very dreamy art as well. Sort of like blurry watercolor stuff, which mm -hmm. I like. Anyway. 
Chapter four, character creation in book two, Wilder. Yeah, it's pretty straightforward, I would say. Yep. Mostly the the same kind of opening info as in the first edition. There are a couple little interesting notes in here. For example, there's a note that she can be houseless, which I don't know that any she player has ever taken advantage of. The merits and flaws are in here, which... Can she be... T- if she have no title, are they nobles too? That's Does that get answered here? No. That, yeah. Questions, you know? I would say so, though. I mean, I think that there being dreams of nobility is more important for, for example, affecting them with cantrips than whether or not they have a title. But mm-hmm. I don't know. Maybe not. Good question. Mm-hmm. Never answered in any changeling book as far as i can tell (laughs) there are a few extra steps i mean obviously besides the merits and flaws there's the musing and ravaging thresholds and the specialties but what i really like about this edition's take aside from the fact that the process is much much more cleanly articulated here the spark of life section just has wonderful wonderful material for a session zero so (laughs) I think it's a good approach. Like it just, it focuses very heavily Mm -hmm. on figure out who your character is over what dots do you have. And other games do that too, to some extent, but it's nice to see. It's also a question and answer sidebar that I've also never used in a game. Ah, but it's so good for a session zero. And it's better than in first edition where they kind of threw in the character sheet and its terms like three chapters before getting to the character creation, I think so. Maybe not three chapters, but mm-hmm. certainly significantly before. Oh, and here's where here's where the implication is that the Oath Circle is the default association of players. Because it's like, for the prelude questions, where is the Oath Circle based? Does the Oath Circle have a freehold? What are the goals of the Oath Circle? Who are the Oath Circle's enemies? Who are your friends and allies? Yeah. Can I just have a motley and be done with it? I think it's really a vampire coterie. It's the Oath Circle. But on the character sheet, it says Motley. You know, you're expected to be part of a Motley on the character sheet and an Oath Circle yeah, on the prelude. Says, but it also says House on the character sheet, doesn't it? It does. It should probably say, like, House slash Motley. Well, in first edition, it said Household slash Motley because the implication was that you would be part of a noble household or part of a commoner Motley. Yeah. But an Oath Circle, I mean, you, you have presumably sworn an Oath together if you're an Oath Circle. And that gives you, like I said, those mechanical benefits, which are important. So I'm not saying one can't Mm -hmm. do that. I just don't know that it should be the default in any case. I always took Oath Circle as the PC group, but that's different depending on the group. Yeah, I always went with Motley. Motley's more fun as a name, though. Yeah, and I always went with Motley because... Maybe you just play commoner games, that's why. But, but then you always have like that one person who plays a she in your group. and then That's fine. They're a knight in their house, Fiona. I, right? I like supporting games where changelings can associate with each other without needing an oath for, as the reason to bring them together. Yeah. Anyways. Oh, wait. Here's a person with, with an unaffil- no house and no motley. Sorry. Anyway, continue. Well, and it says if you are not a noble to put unaffiliated under the house on the character sheet. I believe it says that somewhere in the character yeah. creation write up. Yeah, there it is. If your character yep. has no affiliation with any of the houses, right unaffiliated. So mm-hmm. we get the charts with the lists of the different um, stuff and an example of character creation, which is quite thorough, I think. 
and then the stuff itself, the legacies and the abilities and the attributes, most of which are mm-hmm. unchanged. Legacies, there's a few new ones that have been added since first edition. For Sealy, they've added Dandy, Panderer, and Squire. For Unsealy, they added Knave, Pandora, and Ringleader, which I think might have all appeared in the player's guide, but I can't recall off the top of my head. Yeah. One thing that I do really like, actually, for the attributes, the attributes obviously are unchanged because they're standard for Old World of Darkness, but rather than do what they often have where it's like, Strength one, you can barely open a soda can or whatever. A lot of them just use these kind of descriptive adjectives, just these lists. So like stamina three, resistant, sound, hardy, robust, sturdy. Stamina four, steadfast, resolute, committed, determined. Mm -hmm. And I like that. I think that's a good way of approaching it. Yep. The strength one, I remember there being an argument at least once on the table because there's like how much you can lift, but there's later rules for lifting and yeah. they're not the same. And yeah, <laughs> strength is the exception that proves the rule to that descriptive adjectives thing, because that is the one yeah. that does have specific numbers. And then abilities, there are a few changes. Expression is replaced by persuasion and talents. And then in knowledges, myth lore has changed to grammaire and occult has changed to lore. And there are secondary abilities kind of very, very discreetly tucked away at the end of the descriptions, which is where they belong. (laughs) As for backgrounds, Chimera has been expanded to unfold both companions and items. And Grimaire, the background, has Mm -hmm. been renamed Remembrance, which has been weirdly changed from like a past life kind of thing to an etiquette bonus. I don't know what's up with that, but... I still keep the past life thing. Well, it's both, isn't it? It's still a past life thing. Yeah, but I mean, to to have it be an etiquette bonus, like in the first edition, it's anytime the character needs to know something concerning the Fae, the player may roll a number of dice equal to her grammar rating difficulty six. So it's just like oracular knowledge Mm -hmm. about Fae stuff. Whereas remembrance is that if you're interacting with changelings or other creatures of the dreaming, you roll and the number of successes can be added to an etiquette pool or how well you understand the unwritten laws of fairy society and that's different you know it's it's also later on there's a system about it's how many dice you can use when doing extra actions is it well for if you're doing uh dragon's ire ah okay yes oh i'm so excited to get to that Uh, And the resources, you will need to adjust. Have they adjusted the resources (laughs) for inflation between, I guess it was just two years, but you will need to use, adjust the resources. If you're you're playing second edition, you will need to adjust resources for inflation. Because I'm like, oh. Yeah. eh, Even in Canadian dollars, that's uh, not good. Yeah, 500 a month. um, Good luck. Retinue has been dramatically reduced. Retinue 5 used to have 32 members in your retinue. Now it's down to 10. (laughs) <laughs> so it's slightly different. Yeah. And then... Still a lot of NPCs to make for this. Yeah. And then the treasure's description has been kind of clarified and expanded, which is good. So one difference I saw is uh, both of our favorite thing of... Uh, this is Maybe this is the first place it's added treasures being art-based. So like level mm-hmm. one is like a level one treasure. Optionally. Or... Optionally. <laughs> Optionally. Okay. It's fine. I guess a system was needed. 
And then we get some tempers, banality, glamour, and willpower. I think they're a little bit different. I mean, obviously they're very different from C20 because there's no like banality triggers or anything. There's some interesting mechanical notes, like if your temporary banality is higher than your permanent glamour, it leads to mist slippage. and Which is in C20, actually. Yeah. I didn't think it was, but I found it. Something like yeah. that. Similar system. And because the whole cantrip system is different, it interacts with all of these very differently, yeah. So, which we'll get to very shortly. Do the other games have willpower? You get, you can, if you're out of willpower, you can lower a permanent willpower to get, fill up your temporary pool. I believe so. Okay. But I'll check. (laughs) Health is pretty much the same. Uh, And then merits and flaws are here. I'm not going to go into them because there's so many, but they're in the core book rather than the player's guide now. So here they are. Yeah. They are now part of character creation. They're pretty similar. Yeah. And that's the character creation chapter. So should we get into chapter five, Arts and Realms? Because mm-hmm. this is probably the biggest change. <laughs> yes. So no more cantrip no cards. No more cards. Yay! I know we've had one, lead, at least one listener seems to like them, so let's not be too harsh. <laughs> well, I, I mean, like I had said before, I like them in principle as you know, a fun variant, but I don't want them to be the base system because there's so much more complicated mm-hmm. than the way it's presented here. So yep. I'd rather have the simpler system be the base. Yeah, there was a, a system before, but I think a big change is here. They still have attributes for arts, like each art, like chicaneries, manipulation or whatever. But now you just use your realm for your die pool instead of like right. a skill associated with the realm. Right. Random ability. <laughs> That may or may not have anything to do with the realm level. No using politics for if the thing's big enough to have seen anyway. Maybe as big as a castle. So interestingly, though, I like having the attribute as part of the dice pool rather than the art level. I know that people are Mm -hmm. like, oh, that doesn't make sense. But it's basically the vampire system, right? Is to have the attribute Mm -hmm. kind of be a thing for each power. And the reason I like it is because... When you just have art plus realm as your dice pool, it compels you to dump dots into arts. And Mm -hmm. first of all, you start with far fewer dots than you have attributes. So there's that. I don't know. I feel like it it shoehorns you into... And then one of my kids gets uh, playing the game, takes Wayfair 5 and Fae 5. Yeah. And Wayfair is still broken as fuck in this system. So in this edition. Yeah. So it's very similar. Yeah. Well, they, they slightly reduced the flight time that you get for the Windrunner cantrip. So you get a couple <laughs> turns fewer. That was a nerf. Windrunner was never the problem. Right, exactly. Wayfair 2, I'll take eight extra actions. I think this one has more brokenness, but maybe I just never really looked in detail at first, Ed, in terms of like, oh, this level's kind of useless and this level's very powerful. Sure, yeah. Yeah. I'll give you the art by art breakdown of the changes real quick. So Chicanery has bumped Veiled Eyes down to the level two slot, thereby bumping up, what is it, Fugue and Captive Heart or Haunted Heart, whatever it is. Legerdemain gets more specific mechanics for its effects. Primal collapses Heatherbalm Mm -hmm. and Holly Strike into level four and adds Eldritch Prime for its level two. Soothsay gives more description about Dan and collapses Fair Fortune and Boil and Bubble into the level 2 power, thereby adding Omen as level 1. 
Yeah. As a sidebar, I have to say, just very briefly, Soothsay 4, the augury power, that final note kicked me right in the heart. So the, the final bit is, yeah. note, the caster achieves one free success in addition to any successes earned if her suggested augury event is a complementary element to the target's dawn. For example, if her target is a person dying of AIDS and she describes a scene where he passed away with all of his loved ones present, she gets one free success. And I was like, well, yep, this book was written in the 90s. Because that, yep. yeah. I do think that like, augury is one of my favorite, as written here though, like that, yes, yes, I don't want to, but like augury the power here is one of my favorite powers of any role-playing game like i just love it soothsay has so much potential in second edition specifically Mm -hmm. like even omen omen is just a beautiful power yeah anyway so then very briefly sovereign has a really useful sidebar on the types of protocol rules that are out there and also thankfully puts gaze in the singular at level five it also mentions that Weaver Ward can protect against counterweaving, which I think is kind of nifty. And then Wayfair is still broken. Yeah, it also is written is well, Weaver Ward's actually completely broken too, but unless the person's of higher well, title. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> a lot of these are. It, it, <laughs> Weaver Ward so. and uh yeah, there's a lot of like useless things, but then you're like, oh, ledger demand, the best combat art. Yeah. <laughs> I always liked Chicanery the most. Chicanery and Soothsay were like my go-tos. Yes. But I don't like the, um, I don't remember if they had this in first, the fail, Veiled Eyes is just too short a duration. Uh, that's probably, that might be because they moved it to level two rather than level four. Yeah, I like it was like the LARP ability where it was a scene. Mm. Speaking of scene, with the changes to realms, scene is now only a modifier realm and just specifies square footage rather than uh, being a direct mostly. realm. Mostly. It's, mostly. It, it is still a direct realm you can use. There's certain cantrips that use it, right? Like... Yeah. And I think it can also still target, like, if you need to target the location, but you're not targeting what's in the location, if that makes sense. Right. Like, I think Soothsay with Scene makes sense. I think uh, with uh, Primal with Scene yeah. makes sense to me. Will a Whisper. That might be. I want to chat with a castle or chat with a park. I suppose so, yeah. Maybe more importantly, this is where we first get the Time Realm, because it wasn't a realm at all in the first mm-hmm. edition. So we've kind of taken some stuff from Kronos and turned it into a realm. Yeah, and it's not terribly useful. Yeah, I'd it's say. it's just a delay. So. <laughs> we'll forward to C twenty where it's too too useful. So I don't know about you, but every changeling game that I think I ever played in where someone had time, we kind of finagled additional effects for. Like yes, it was like okay, once you get to time three, you can add a contingency or. Yeah, yeah, I just didn't expect when running C20, I'm like, I think I need to start house ruling nerfing it because it's just yeah. too too powerful now. So, I mean, some happy medium. Yeah. Something I do like about the cantrip descriptions that they added here is whether the default type is chimerical or weird. I think that's a very useful yeah. thing to have. So, mm-hmm. which again, was not really Now that they have chimerical and weird, they didn't really have weird before. Right, because you did, because the card system made it totally wonky, so. Yeah. But that's Arts and Realms. Yeah. So then chapter six, rules. The standard rules stuff. How do you feel about the rules with like the actual here's how dice rolling works? How do you feel about this appearing as late in the book as it does? I'm okay with that. There's, if you put it in too early, it's like boring. It, yeah. It, and I've never, 
especially a White Wolf book, I maybe I'd read it cover to cover, but I don't know how many people who do. Yeah, that's fair. It's kind of like, do you want it directly before or directly after character creation? I think that's kind of the choice. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm fine with it. Like in in this system, right? You have more dots and things. That's better. Like more dots is better than less dots. So like that's kind of clear as you go fewer through dots. it. Fewer dots. Fewer dots. Yes, fewer. Sorry, <laughs> fewer. But so it's like you. That that's all you really need to know for character creation. You don't need to know like the probability levels, especially in this system. I never cared about them, and when people, I know that that people have hashed out the mathematics of it and and said this is wonky and mm-hmm. this isn't. I, I just yeah, that's as far as I needed to know basically. Well, I mean, it's, you just don't use difficulty ten and don't use difficulty two, and then it's fine. Like it, I don't. The wonkiness is just really hard to predict, which is actually I think a plus. Interestingly, there's a note on page 192 that says, your storyteller assigns a difficulty number to your role, a number between 1 and 10, and it's never mentioned again. Yeah. <laughs> difficulty 1 is, um, what? Yeah. <laughs> you just succeed. But do you still boss? To their credit, they strongly contradict that later on. Yeah. So. But yeah, I mean, it's the usual rules explanatory chapter of a WAD book. I do like how there's this kind of ongoing scene that they explain through one role after another. So it's like mm-hmm. they explain a simple action with someone knocking over a glass of milk and then uh, multiple actions with someone trying to catch the milk and move a laptop and, and then and extend it. And then pops a disc into the drive. Yeah, well, it's the 90s. So there's another thing you would have to update. For. Yes, I'm just like, not all our listeners, but there are these things called discs that you put into drives. They still computers. know. They're kind of like thumb Listen, drives. I test my students about this every term. <laughs> they still know. So... <laughs> They may never have used one. My first, my computer science, intro to computer science course for my computer science program had like a intro course that was like an intro session that was optional that taught you what disks are and how to use them. Well, back in 2000. Them's were the times. The golden rule is in here. It's the one that matters. And then there's a list of game terms, which is a handy list to have. Although I'm not convinced there isn't a better spot for it somewhere in the book. That being said, throwing it with the character sheet is probably like the way first edition did is probably not a better move. So, yeah, I think you could throw it with the list of setting terms. Yeah. And also important to remember that this is second edition where if you have more ones than successes, you still botch. Mm-hmm. And that's chapter six. I think it's the shortest chapter in the book, probably as it should be. Oh, no one... Have you ever called your, your group of players a troop before? Probably at some point. Yeah, that's the game. That's the official game term here. Yeah. Chapter seven. Lammer systems. This is the chunky one. Mm-hmm. So from the very start, Glamour is defined as nebulous and has lots of different mysterious possibilities. And probably the best advice the book gives about it is to use like rich and emotive description for it, like playing into senses and feelings. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't say like Glamour is x so all of the sort of discussions about oh it's the product of creativity or the energy of emotion or whatever it's like well it's kind of open-ended yep it's related to those things for sure yeah and then we get the cantrip system the cardless cantrip system yes i know there's been much scuttlebutt about how difficult it is to cast cantrips in second edition because 
in C20, the difficulty is set at eight. Well, it depends on the context. Depends on the yeah. cantrip. But the other thing is that, so the difficulty here is but the target's banality plus four or the caster's banality plus four, whichever is higher, which I think frankly makes sense in keeping with the idea of how the magic is supposed to work because you're drawing the dreaming's mm -hmm. energy into the autumn world and directing it at something. So it makes sense mm -hmm. to me. And the glamour cost of things is really intense. Yeah. yeah. But you could spend glamour to lower it. There's also a rule later, if you have other realms that could apply, each one also lowers the difficulty by one. So you end up in this situation where you can have, like, yes, banality should affect it. I think this went a bit overboard on that. Mm. It's like, yeah, somebody's banality seven versus somebody's banality five. That's a huge difference. Well, yeah, maybe. Plus, you have to spend a glamour if you don't want to use a bunk, which is also like... It is prohibitively expensive with glamour. I will yeah. I will agree with that. I mean, the fact that it says, like, if you cast a cantrip on a, on a banal target, it costs one glamour, even if it's not a weird cantrip. And that's just mortals. So yeah. that plus if it's a weird cantrip, plus if you want to reduce the difficulty and you're looking at, you know, three glamour or more. Plus if you want to use modifier realm. Yeah, right, exactly. So like, it just keeps, again, second edition was a much more glamour scarce game for many reasons, I think. And this is one of them. Mm -hmm. But I think you also had, generally speaking, you could have higher dice pools for lower arts. Like you could have level yeah. one in an art and still be rolling seven or eight dice if your attribute was high yes. enough. So. We'll get it when we do. We mentioned C20 a lot. I, th I feel like it, there's a lot of C20 overshot problems with second edition. Mm, that's a good way of framing but it. But yeah. I think there are still problems in second edition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, absolutely. I mean, as a sort of meta comment, the thing with a proper edition update, I feel, is that if you're going to fix problems, don't overfix them, you know? Because then you end up kind of creating new systems yeah. entirely that are just. That, that change the tone of the game. Or if you want to do that, be intentional about it. And I don't know if C20 always kind of hit that mark. Yeah. It feels different. Well, like, like for instance, if this one, like I'm not sure what I do about bunks, but like if you took this system, took away a lot of the glamour, you have to spend glamour on this, and you have to spend glamour on that. I don't know what I do with bunks, but let's just put aside bunks for a moment. And then you had the, base difficulty just be instead of plus four it's just the banality i think that could work mm. better i think that might make it too easy though for any fey the fact that they made everybody's banality three to start is worth bearing in mm. mind as well <laughs> instead of one yeah oh that's the other thing too yeah. childlings what <laughs> like you want to play the I mean, child childlings would be flying through the air constantly. <laughs> yeah. But like already it's like that, right? Like it's yeah. like if a childling's affecting themselves or other childlings or chimera, they're already like, right. It's base difficulty five and you have to use a bunk anyway. So it's really at least base difficulty four. Right. Yeah. Anyway, we could probably have a whole discussion on the timbre of the cantrip system yeah. from addition to addition. There are some advanced rules yeah. provided as well. So there's secondary realms. There's countering cantrips by invoking banality or doing counterweaving. And I don't think any of those made it into C20. I know counterweaving didn't. 
nightmares did make it into c20 but they're rather different mm. than the way they're presented here yeah i don't like i like the c20 nightmares better do you this is like it's just you get a second banality track basically that sometimes gives you bad dreams i guess that's one way to frame it <laughs> yeah. yeah i'm i'm fine with either frankly i've always been very nightmare averse in games so i've never really had to worry about it but uh yeah yeah it's not a LARP thing at all, so it's... You know, uh-huh. kind of, I've had it show up in tabletop, but... Then we get some states of being stuff. We have the Mists chart, which is much less extensive. Mm-hmm. So Dreams and Nightmares introduces the much more complex one that C20 picks up. And this is just a... If your banality mm-hmm. is this, here's how long your coma will last if you're killed, and here's how much you'll remember when you wake up. So... Slash how much you'll remember when you return to the mortal world from the dreaming. It has the note, the chart is used to determine what happens to mundane beings that have been enchanted and are subsequently returned to the mortal world, suggesting that enchantment removes you from the mortal world, which I find interesting, mm-hmm. but okay. I don't, well, I mean, what's the mortal world? Yeah, that's all. Yeah. <laughs> like, it doesn't say if they go into the dreaming, which is a whole thing. No, no, I think it's if you're enchantment. That's yeah. what they mean is because they talk about the enchanted world and the mortal world as being enchantment, basically. So I guess so. Anyway, then there's Bedlam. And I prefer Bedlam in this edition, frankly. <laughs> so I would like a system for it. I just basically never no one ever used it because it's just kind of like it's like saying, Oh yeah, let's just yeah, your house burned down or something. <laughs> like yeah. it's just there's no well, and this is this is pretty in line with first edition's take on it as well. Yes. And I think the warning signs checklist Yeah, the warning signs checklist is copied verbatim. Right. And the warning signs checklist is I think the most useful part of this entire write-up. The system as it exists in C20 always strikes me as too mechanized if that makes sense. I find the problem is it doesn't incorporate the warning signs checklist. Well, right, yeah. But the warning signs checklist I want a mechanized warning signs checklist. <laughs> Yeah, I could accept that, I guess. But the warning signs checklist, it's like, at least it kind of gives you, or it gives the storyteller some leeway to kind of determine whether or not they want to initiate a Bedlam story, you know? Mm -hmm. Anyways, we get some information about enchantment, which is much more straightforward here than in C20, and basically identical to first edition. I like the enchantment here. Yeah, it's simple, straightforward. You get... Calling upon the weird, which is also less powerful than C20, but also much more needed yes. than C20. Yes, so. to get your birth rates. <laughs> the one thing about the calling upon the weird that I would probably house rule in second edition, even though it might break the game slightly, is that, so it has a mention, where is it, about cantrips. All cantrips that the character casts are considered weird. That means all cantrips cost one glamour to cast. I'd actually make them all free. Or, you know, the, like, if you're already in the yeah, weird state. like C20. It's, they're all weird, but you don't have to spend the glamour, so yeah. it's fine. Then we have Oaths, and again, pretty much verbatim from first edition, with the addition of the Crossed Blades, which is new. And a lot of them... That, these... I use these so much. Yeah. These Oaths. and uh... Hopefully the ones that are actually worth it to take. Because some of them aren't, I feel... <laughs> I don't know, cross blades, like that was fun. In LARP, people love doing that one. No, cross blades maybe, but the other ones, is it like long road where yeah, yeah you get you get a willpower and glamour point, but then failing costs you three of each. It's like 
and abandoning. Yeah. But it's the whole thing is with an oath, you don't just swear an oath to get the benefits. You swear an oath because you're making a commitment. I think you and I know that. And I think 90% of players don't. <laughs> oh, okay. I mean, you know, it's it's kind of like people want to be nobles to get the house boons. Yeah. Well. I, I take a dim view sometimes. of. Okay. Again, it's also, also there's a lot of LARP stuff I've done. Even oh. when I'm playing tabletop, it's been with LARPers a lot. Oh, there you go. Or with people with like improv backgrounds or with stuff like that. So. so then we have four paths to epiphany instead of three because we've added rhapsody here. How bohemian. Yeah. But as with so much of the book, it's mostly the same information as in first edition, just expanded and given flourishes. Yeah. So I should ask you, do you consider the musing and ravaging thresholds to be the only options for players? No, but nobody ever has asked for anything else when I've been running. All right. Because I never have either, but then I've had storytellers who've been like, no, you have to pick one of these. It's like, but what if none of them really fit, you know? I'm mostly a player's go, I don't want to pick this right now I'm doing, when they're doing <laughs> character creation. It, it, that's like, there's serious character creation fatigue by that point. That's fair. There's also this sidebar about spontaneous glamour where they talk about how uh, a glamour-induced work of art can like create spontaneous glamour for all who witness it. And there's not really a system given for it, mm -hmm. but I wish there were, and I wish that this was more attended to elsewhere. Because mm -hmm. I like that as, you know, I believe there should be more ambient glamour and glamour squeezed out of moments and places and assemblages of people rather than just the paths to epiphany. But that's just, maybe that's just my opinion. I don't know. Dross appears unchanged from one first edition. Yeah, basically. I do like the note that if you eat too much chimerical meat, it can make you poisoned or sick or whatever. Mm -hmm. So then we get chimera extensive extensive information and yet somehow a lot of information that i want is not in here like for example rules about how to create them yes now granted it's still much better than first edition which only had a couple of paragraphs that told you very little mm -hmm. and c20 does update it dramatically but yeah well that's where kiss book noggers comes in yeah <laughs> Actually, Dreams and Nightmares also covers. Yeah, that's true. Like and Noble's the Shining Host a little bit. Oh, there is an important note on page 220, which I know has come up in discussions before, where in this edition, at least, not all Chimera will speak the Changeling's language. The Kithane would need to know German to speak with a German Chimera, or Plant Lore to communicate with an enchanted apple tree in the Queen's mm -hmm. Orchard. Your mileage may vary on whether or not you want to use this when dealing with sentient chimera, but I think it's interesting that it's in here, that mm -hmm. whoever dreamed the chimera informs how they communicate. Even though there aren't, like, in-universe rules for how chimera are created, there are wonderfully solid rules for how to stat out your chimerical creatures, whether it's your chimerical companion background or oh, otherwise. Yeah. I've used this a lot. Yeah, this is really, really great. In fact, I've used this for care. I've allowed this for character creation occasionally. Oh. Like somebody was playing a kid. Before they had the C20 player's guide, Chimera player rules. I've had people for like two or three players. Yeah. Sort of, we like cobble together a little bit extra and it's like, yeah, here you go. Yeah. There is also another um, sort of point of contention 
is wall and whether it confers any benefit. There's a sidebar that very specifically says it doesn't, mm -hmm. but then it, you know, people are like, well, if you're a troll and you manifest armor when you go through your chrysalis, don't you get chimerical armor that stops chimerical yeah. weapons? I'm like, yeah, just take the chimerical item background. Right, exactly. That's weirdly, there's a sidebar about how many dots you need to take that benefit on the second to last page of the book, which feels like entirely the wrong place for it. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, anyway, so that's in here too. But we have like a big old list of reads and there's a really good sample chimera character creation sidebar, which is useful. The banality resistance rules have been dramatically clarified and expanded from first edition. So it's mm -hmm. nice. It's a nice little section. I approve. And freeholds have also been dramatically updated. Is this where they added in wraths? Yes, I believe so. But a lot of it came from freeholds and hitting glens as well. I can't remember if wraths showed up in there. Yeah, A lot of the other stuff is from there too. Early stuff, you get confusion between trod and wrath. Right, and yeah. kind of yeah. used interchangeably. Or at least, yeah. It is a little confusing, especially when they try to delineate the chimerical aspect of a freehold versus the other side of, the, of a wrath. It's like, okay, so the freehold mm -hmm. exists in the autumn world where it has a mundane aspect, but then it also has a chimerical aspect. And then they all contain a wrath that leads to their dreaming part. But the dreaming part only sometimes mm -hmm. has access to a trod, which is opened separately. <laughs> So it's like you have to kind of bear all of those in mind. Yeah, the way it's actually played out usually, both in the game I played in, but also how I think of it is ignore the wrath bit. And it's just like you have a freehold and inside the freehold, like it's like a freehold has two outsides. Yeah, the back door. One in the autumn world and one in the dreaming and one inside. <laughs> yeah, I always kind of treated the wrath as always open and you could just go out the back door into the dreaming. Mm-hmm. Can I also just say I love the sidebar with the types of trods, and I can't remember if this appeared anywhere else, but I adore it. Including the sun trods that you can access in a mm. balloon. Yes. But only in the daytime. Oh, and here on page 227 is the bit about the penons of the nobles being used to take over freeholds. So that's how they did it. Mm -hmm. She get a bonus for opening wraths. Ishu and she get a bonus for opening trods. Yeah, I never got this whole opening trod versus opening wrath thing. That was just... Yeah. yeah. I was not a fan of that. And you're like, you have to take level three Wayfair, level five Fey to do it. Yeah. I guess because like opening a wrath is like kicking open a door. Getting on a trod is like hopping on a speeding train or something. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we did it as like the owner of the freehold can just kind of do it, but like... If you want to, if you're like an interloper, here you go. Well, if the owner of the freehold is, you know, the an NPC, you can just hand wave and say, yeah, they've got Wayfair 3, Fay 5. Mm. Yeah. We just kind of, yeah, I just kind of hand wave it if it's a PC one too. All right. But, but that's it for glamour systems, of which there are many. We have chapter eight, dramatic systems. I'm a little bit confused why this is after glamour systems, but anyway. Yeah. Do you, have, do you have strong thoughts on these specific systems? Not particularly. I mean, it's it's the same confusing action ordering that is the hallmark of the old world, the old world of darkness. But it's you know going back to comparing it with first edition, 
a lot of the systems are almost exactly the same to the point of just copying and pasting text and tables entirely. Mm-hmm. They've added like courtly etiquette and dream interpretation has been revised slightly, but you know, otherwise it's verbatim the same. I think the combat descriptions in second edition might actually be even more confusing than in first edition. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, I think it comes down to terminology though, because the combat system where you have everyone rolls initiative, then everyone declares their action in reverse order, and then resolves their action in initiative order. Conceptually, I understand Mm -hmm. why they do that, because it's the idea of if you're thinking fast and acting fast, you kind of get the jump on everybody else. So you have to know what everyone else is planning to do. But just the execution of it is so clumsy. (laughs) It's like... Oh, that being said, this book definitely benefits from having come out after World of Darkness Combat because compared with first edition, they have added so many potential complications for every single type of combat possible, including mounted combat. Did you know that you can't fire crossbows from a horse? Now you do. You use the word good there in a way. I don't know. I use that meaning of this. Well, it's certainly impressive. Yes. It does bother me that the tables summarizing a lot of this stuff are many pages away from the fuller descriptions. That seems unhelpful. Oh, they have explicit rules for knocking people out now. Or did they have that? They had that before for the stunning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. They did eliminate, though, there was a a freeform combat system in first edition, which they got rid of, I think. Mm -hmm. And I don't really know why, but... It wasn't like I ever used it, so. Mm. Yeah. And we have, and they have Invoking the Dragon's Ire. I think that's new. Yes. And the Orbori Berserk. We use that so much. Yeah. It's great, though. I mean. When when that Skahawk rules came out with the Skahawk martial arts in a later supplement. That oh, kind of that's goofy. Silly. But it's so much more flavorful here than just making it an art, you know? And I really appreciate yeah. that. No, no, yeah. And it's kith flavored, like different kiths get different bonuses for invoking it. Mm-hmm. And some of that flavor has been folded into unleashing now. No, I actually think I prefer this to making it an art. Yeah. You have the dragon's dance dueling tradition where everybody invokes dragon's ire and just wails on each other. Yeah. It's almost like an oath. Yeah. And I do also like the enchanted stroke, which you can kind of just bap someone and enchant them. Yes. And the dolorous blow, where you kind of use willpower to call on the weird just to manifest a chimerical weapon. Yeah. I like those two things. Yeah. The nerfing in C20 of enchantment, I do not like. I like the enchanted stuff of it. Well, and I, I wonder if part of that is because they made the enchanted and the kinane so freaking powerful. <laughs> so yeah. They had to nerf it. Mm-hmm. But I do get the sense just reading through this chapter that a lot of these ideas like that are kind of the result of two years worth of players just coming up with inventions, you know, mm-hmm. kind of creating all of these little things. And then it got compiled into this much expanded system. Then we get some stuff on injury and healing and aggravated damage is introduced where it was not present in first edition, which is kind of astonishing. Oh, they do. Unlike C20, this does explicitly state that real humans can, regular humans can be hurt. Good. Came up in our Discord with a question. It's like, does does chimeric, it's like somebody was, group was arguing if like chimerical damage can hurt enchanted mortals. And I'm like, I'm going through the C20 book. I'm like, I can't, 
but it doesn't say that in C20. But it also doesn't say that they could be hurt with regular damage either. So, oh no. <laughs> well, that's even more reason why enchantment is powerful in C20. I guess. I assume that was an oversight. Yes, it just it's just because all the damage stuff only talk only mentions changelings. Yeah. when they talk about things, it just doesn't. It just leaves out talking about anybody else. <laughs> But to the frequent comment that changelings are glass cannons, it does really show through here. I mean, I think that the comment is often made in reference to banality, but they are squishy humans. They're just as squishy as mages. And there's a comment mm-hmm. where it says, cantrips such as Heatherbalm can heal normal damage easily. And I'm thinking, oh, you mean the one healing spell you put in this entire book? Ah, but you can make a treasure that does it too. Oh, okay. <laughs> that makes it better. <laughs> Oh, and there's uh, the freehold thing, but you know. but even freeholds, it's like you still need to spend a day for every health level, which is a lot, you know. So yep. the dreaming it heals quickly, but that's just chimerical damage. In any mm-hmm. case, which is another question: What does that mean, chimerical damage in the dreaming? Right. But well, com- the, the dreaming doesn't distinguish. I would say if you're in the dreaming, you take damage, yeah. either normal or I guess aggravated. Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. The other damage sources are pretty much from first edition. I think disease and poison got added in here, but not really described thoroughly. And fire doesn't do aggravated. I like that. Well, probably because it was copied and pasted from first edition. Well, no, I, I like that fire doesn't. I'm like, that should be a vampire problem. It's listed as their weakness. Why does everyone else take it? <laughs> well, and that's the thing. It's the changelings probably don't take it because they copied the fire rules from first edition, which didn't have aggravated yeah. damage. So otherwise they probably would take. Yeah. Oh, no. Fire does do aggravated. Wait, hang on. (laughs) But under, now that I'm looking back, under aggravated damage, it says cold iron, toxic waste, acid, and fire are also common causes of aggravated wounds. So they probably took the aggravated damage description from another game, but then kept the fire description from Changeling First Edition. Yep. Yay, Changeling. Yay, White Wolf. Let's not... Importantly, there's a sentence here that I want to specifically call out because there's been much agita about it. Cold iron is what we know as wrought iron. Full stop. The end. (laughs) So it then does say the best way to think about cold iron is not as a thing, but as a process, a very low tech process. It must be produced from iron ore over a charcoal fire. The resulting lump of black gray material can then be forged, hammered into useful shapes. So... There it is. That's not what wrought iron means, though. What's that? That's not what wrought iron means, though. Well, I'd say it is, but we can have that debate later. (laughs) Yeah. It's certainly not cast iron. On the next page, actually, I also want to point to the banal death section. There's some fascinating stuff in here. So I just want to read this one paragraph, if I may. Mm -hmm. The death of the human part of a changeling while she is on a silver path is an amazing sight weaving aside the fact that it's debatable what kind of damage takes place in the dreaming. The fey souls of commoners stand over the corpses of their human hosts. Others present in the dreaming can converse with these souls, but memories of their last earthbound lifetimes deteriorate as the minutes pass. As this happens, they begin to remember more and more of Arcadia. At the moment, their memories of the human life fade completely, and their ancient lives in Arcadia and the pre-sundering earth are remembered. A fist of purple chimerical flame pulls them fighting and screaming all the way back into the world of darkness, where they then presumably reincarnate. So that yep. that raises all kinds of questions. I, I actually had that scene in a game once it was running. That nice. Was fun. 
<laughs> That's, I mean, there's, there's something very Tibetan Buddhist about that. <laughs> the dreaming is your bardo, and then you get dragged back into flesh. Yeah. But the she don't. But the she don't. <laughs> yeah, no, that, those few paragraphs on that page are really, really fascinating reading material. I'm thinking about. Yeah. Uh, anyway, then we get all the tables, all the tables, all the weapons, all the firefight complications. Yeah, they should have had the tables intermixed. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like by the time you get here, you forget how firefights work. So. And then we get a comic book example of play. Well, and of combat very specifically. And I think it's much, it's probably more useful than the first edition one. And the art is certainly less terrifying. So. Yeah. Slightly less terrifying. And that's chapter eight, the dramatic systems. Yeah. I have chapter nine, storytelling. So good news. I checked and, and I didn't like really thoroughly check, but I feel confident in saying that with a very few exceptions and minor tweaks, this is the exact same chapter word for word as in first edition, like exactly the same. Mm. So I don't really have anything to say. Yeah, I think, I think, I mean, I like that they, you don't, you have to go, you, you can, it's easier to ignore the, oh, okay. I know you liked it, but like the Joseph Campbell stuff's later in the book. So well, I don't, it's not that I like it. I mean, I'm, I'm okay with it. I'm okay with it being a base that people use to create a yeah. story. I'm, I'm indifferent to it. Yeah. I don't like it prescriptively as a all stories right. are like this. Well, and they, they specifically say here, one kind of myth structure is called the hero's journey and is an archetype for many adventures and fantasy mm. stories. So it's like, all right. And it says you can pick and choose elements from it. Yeah. I do like how the artwork in this chapter kind of tells its own little story, like from scene to scene. That's nice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like they get off the airplane and then they're like sneaking in. and then... Yeah, they wake up the bird egg it's great i think it did it drop an egg while flying i don't know sorry <laughs> what do you think about this being the last chapter i mean aside from the appendix the last chapter chapter nine as opposed to in first edition when it was chapter three do you like this after all the other stuff? yeah i like it like here it's the storyteller thing and it's like yeah you need all the other pieces and then it's sort of like this is how you pull it all together yeah I think I agree. And I, when we went through the first edition one, I think I was on the fence because it's hard to remember what I said, but I think I kind of was intrigued by in first edition that kind of really pushed you into crafting the story as the most important part of the game. Whereas with second edition core book, it mm-hmm. feels like crafting the character is the more important part. It also, if you come across this whole storytelling chapter as a someone who's not planning on storytelling, you're like, well, is this, is this for me? Like, I think it's still useful for players though. I mean, there's the same mm-hmm. section on advanced techniques with like dreams, flashbacks, etc. And as a player, if I were new to the game, mm-hmm. I'd want to know what the game suggests for handling scenes like that. There's nothing in here that's like storyteller secrets. So I think it's still useful. Yeah. Then we get, yeah. The appendix. Yes. So weirdly, experience is kind of dropped in here. It seems weird to bury it in here to me, but I guess it's mm-hmm. I guess it makes sense. Note that glamour, raising glamour with experience only costs twice the level as opposed to three times the level in C20. Oh, also the mentor background gives you a discount to learning arts and realms. Hey. 
That's a thing I didn't notice before. How much of a discount is it anyway? Okay, so each success on your mentor roll subtracts one from the experience cost to learn it. Nice. Yeah. Don't botch. (laughs) (laughs) So then we have antagonists, which is more or less in line with first edition. There's a couple additional notes like now the noon you hear in the Changeling Player's Guide, and the representation is just as awkward here as it is there. The Fomori, Mm -hmm. Nervosa, Noknitsa, Monsters and Sprites. No nymphs. Nymphs have been unacceptably deleted Mm -hmm. from this core book. And then the whole thing about Autumn People and the Dantain and Dr. Stark, who thankfully, I think this is maybe like the last time Dr. Stark appears until C20. Yeah. They do have the black dog and no mention of any kind of game studio. I think that's it. Points. And Changeling is the one line that never got a black dog book, I believe, out of the, the main... Fine. Oh man, that would be scary. I would have loved it if they had. That'll show those changeling is too happy yeah, me too. people. Or it would just be like changeling's guide to tax forms. Yeah, it's too adult for most gamers. Doc, doctor. They do mention Otali's somewhere in here. But... So then, one of my favorite parts of the book is the prodigals write-ups. I am in love with these. Yeah. So in the first edition book, prodigals were, I think specifically, was it werewolves and vampires? But now it's just all other supernatural splats. And they're given these like origin myths that are contextualized by a changeling point Mm -hmm. of view. But it's like mages are the descendants from these elemental dreamer children that fell from the stars. I love those mages. I want to play... can we right? make those mages into like a group in mage? Well, they're they're like the wick almost, you know, like the proto yeah. mages. But then vampires are the descendants from a corrupted red cap and like all of that. Werewolves are shape changers that mm-hmm. never give it up, and then wraiths are just wraiths. Sorry, wraith. I mean, wraiths are kind of obvious where they come from. Yeah. We get a table of mage banalities and then a table of everyone else banalities. So <laughs> useful yeah but yeah i mean i think this was i guess because by this point changeling had become fleshed out enough that a crossover game was more feasible mm-hmm. it, it just it's it's a wonderful expansion of those those beings as antagonists and i think it's really well done and i like it for people who like keep arguing that these banal it says average banality to use as a guideline based on their personality yeah yes it's right there just because you're a yeah, I like that. Mummies are extra banal. I never quite understood that one, but okay. Well, those are second edition mummies, though. Not Mummy the Resurrection mummies. Yeah, but I've read that book. They're not. <laughs> well, banality should be relative anyway. Yeah. And then there's that table of chimerical equipment just hanging out yeah, on the kinda, page. Why is that there? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. And then confusingly, you also have magic items with one you know a magic item that has one to two dots of <laughs> art costs three dots of chimera and you're like wait what so i can't remember if this is... but that's a chimerical magic item not a treasure yeah so it's like but why wouldn't you just get a treasure i guess because it's not because then a... somebody could steal your treasure well yeah. someone could steal your chimerical item too <laughs> but this works more like resources too in that you can only take one item that has a magical effect, but otherwise there's no limits on the amount of items you can have based on your chimerica, your chimera dots. So 
Yep. Anyway. After all of that, there is an afterword. And it is, I would say, less bittersweet than the first edition one where Mark Reinhagen was like, now I'm going to go mm-hmm. change the face of computer gaming. I'm, I'm going to go join 90s meta. You know? Right. Or what? Not 90s meta. There was somebody doing something like that. Yeah. Transmedia was basically what was doing. Yeah. I note with interest that Ian Lemke talks about getting rid of the card system, which is good. <laughs> he also says, the book you hold in your hands is much closer to Changeling as I had envisioned it when we originally set about creating the game. Yeah, It shows, you know, it really shows in mm-hmm. the style of the writing and what they chose to emphasize and what they chose to expand and how they chose to expand it. Mm-hmm. Like I said, I'm glad that I started with this one rather than first edition. Yeah, we should, we should run a crossover a Changeling first edition, Mage first edition game. Oh, that'd be interesting. And then that's it. In the back of my hard copy of the book, I found the character sheets from the game I ran like nearly 20 years ago, and I cheered up a little bit. I'll admit it. On my PDF, it's very strange on the character sheet. It's a blank character sheet, except for the other traits is filled in with merits and flaws from some character. <laughs> it's like a little artifact. Of- they have dark secret, mild phobia, compulsion, and acute senses hearing. Sounds like a slua. Actually, it comes to her on Sealy. I think it's actually a Sealy red cap. Perhaps. Oh, and on the back of thing, it also has the same map that has uh, yes. Toronto in the Kingdom of Grass. Well, nobody's perfect. So overall thoughts? I mean, it's honestly my favorite role-playing core book of all time, I'd say. You know? I oh. It's, lots. it's not an exaggeration. It is. It is how. It is not mine. But no. it is such a <laughs> part of me, if that makes sense. Like this is this was my introduction to Changeling, and this has just been like such a big part of me for so long. Yeah, I think I still prefer on the bal- on the whole the C twenty core book over this. But and it, it neither one's my favorite actual core book of a game. I mean, this might be the one I have the most love for. This this in the Shining Host, as in the right. Lark book, are probably the books I have the most love for. If that makes sense. Well, right. That's And that's the thing is that in the balance, C20 may be a more strongly designed game like system, but mm. the power of nostalgia, <laughs> like, and I think context yeah. matters too, because obviously there's the same amount of passion and dedication in C20, but it's, I think, a little bit harder to see because they also included so much. Whereas this book... Yeah. You know, they didn't have to include all 100 kits ever published because a lot of them hadn't been published yet. And they didn't have to include every single art and all of the geography, like Wait, all of that. Okay. As a changeling core book, C20 has a problem. Yeah, it's got too much in it to be an effective core book. Like that that weighs it down. This definitely, it's the right size of a core book hmm. to me. It's the right size if you do intend to read it, read it cover to cover, certainly. <laughs> so. But it's also like a core book where you have supplements, right? Like, you know, I can then pull out dreams and nightmares and we go running in the dreaming or yeah. pull out the, one of the many books dealing she, she houses. Yeah. One of, one of the three. I think C20 is fine as a core book to the extent that you have to know where to cut yourself off for what you need. Cause like mm-hmm. if you're a new player, and you don't know whether or not you're going to have Nunyi or Xian or Thalane or any of the others. Like, mm-hmm. 
it's I think very easy to feel overwhelmed. But if you yep. if you said like read C twenty, but read only the parts that correspond to what's in the second edition core book, I think you'd get a trim volume that is mm-hmm. different, but just as good. And what tips the balance for me in favor of second edition is my deep and abiding love and nostalgia for it, plus some yep. mechanical preferences. Today, when I'm running Changeling, unless suppose we're doing for the metaphor, explains better in person, right? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna pull out my cop. I'm gonna put my C20 core books like on the table. Yeah, I'm not gonna put the second edition core book on the table like as the reference for running this game. Yeah, there's bits I'll take from it, like the enchantment rules. But yeah, I still love it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, my love is still that that shining host book, which we'll get to. Not the other shining host. Well, yeah, and, and again, the power of nostalgia. <laughs> yeah, it's like like a dog-eared copy that you carry around with you. To, like... Just imagine how much glamour is in those pages, you know. Mm-hmm. Like my Changeling Second Edition core book has, I think, moved with me fourteen times. So, it's yep. My, mine has this like it has like like clear tape on the back too. Like yeah, I think it's packing tape or something trying to hold it. <laughs> but that was like put on in like two thousand and two or something. Oh dear. <laughs> do we have questions from the Discord? Yes, we do. Were the Unseely first playable in two E? How do you feel they're handled in Seely? Do you have a preference? This is from Ferret. I don't think they were first playable in two E. I don't know. You could have an unseely character, certainly, in 1E, as well as mm-hmm. 2E. I think that they maybe have a little more depth in 2nd Edition, because, like I said, the Shadow Court has kind of been fleshed out a little bit more. There's reference to the unseely houses mm-hmm. and stuff from the Shadow Court book. But that's I, I almost think that's more of like the political social stuff, and in terms of playing a character, that's mm-hmm. always been present. I think the one, yeah. I guess, maybe like big mechanical thing is that now Rhapsody is in the core book and no Seely would dare do mm-hmm. Rhapsody. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I also, like, I still, that goes back to Shining Coast. The the way legacies are handled is still, to me, too much. If you just read the list of legacies, it's like Seely good, sort of. Unseely bad, we get more emphasis on that, right? Yeah. But. At the very least, second edition is much friendlier to the Slua. <laughs> so, there's yes. that. Yeah, I never understood that. Yeah. It's like also a question for Parrot. Do you have any do you have a preference for how seemings work in 2E versus C20? I would officially like to table that until we get to C20. Yes. JKOMG says this is how I started changing so it's all going to be nostalgia and or salt. Yes. Same. I mean, we could easily do an entire episode just on anecdotes from running this game. So. Yeah. And I think I, I commend us on holding back from doing that. I even for a while created a LARP system based on this book instead of using the Shining Host. Anyway, that, that had its own issues. Well, and as someone who knows very little about the Shining Host, I'm curious to see how different it actually is. Uh, mechanically, extremely. Yeah. For instance, not all arts go to five. and the. I did know that. I did know that. Yeah. Traits are completely different and just, yeah. I've got glimmers of the Mind's Eye Theater system in my brain from reading mm-hmm. Vampire and Mage revised books to some extent, but yeah. yeah. There's, there's separate editions of Mind's Eye Theater that don't quite correspond to tabletop editions, so it's a whole other. Hmm. Open Sorceress asks, uh, WTF exactly is Cold Iron 
is it cast or rot? Is there, there's, well, yeah, it's rot. It says that. It's rot. I think the threshold is that it has to have a carbon content of less than 0.05% or something. But it doesn't necessarily, I don't, in this example here, when they describe how to make wrought iron, it's like, yeah, it doesn't meet the, the technical. I go with the, the whole over a brazier process description because then it becomes, it's not impossible to get by any means, but at the same time, you're not going to just randomly come across cold iron all the time. Right. My take on it is it's the oldest and most labor-intensive and, frankly, least structurally advantageous way to make iron, Mm -hmm. with the caveat that I am not a metallurgist, so... Yes. Oh, yeah, I think I handed that to, like, a hobby smithing, and he's like, this makes no sense, but... (laughs) All right. What is the effect? Well, the effect says what it is here. Uh, And a question about selective misprints, I don't really know how to answer... Oh, about the Gwydion thing. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it's in my copy. I don't know. <laughs> mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. To... yeah, and Ardwin also echoed the thing from Ferret about seemings. Yeah. To be addressed in the future. Yeah. Between first and second edition, not really changed. Except I think maybe it might be a little bit more strictly following based on physical age. And it wasn't first edition. Uh... Maybe. I don't know. I think it's still. I think it's still there in first edition too. <laughs> no, I mean, as in, as in, like, if you're maybe some, there's like some fourteen year old childlings and some eleven year old wilders, kind of. That was somewhere in some change in the book. I don't think it was the first edition core book, though. Okay. Because I'm, I'm, I'm scrolling and looking. I can also say one big difference with second edition to first edition is there's a lot more in second edition of where first edition had a lot more. Why is that picture with this text? <laughs> yeah. Okay. So I guess, is that it for... Yeah, I think that's it for... I guess this was a deeper dive than I anticipated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think we're just going to do deep dives. It's This was like, we at least had our head below the water a fair amount. Yeah. So, how do we wrap this up again? It's been a hot minute. Well, I guess... Uh... Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to this first episode of Season 2. And mm-hmm. We're on Mastodon at changelingpod at dice.camp. Uh, you can email us podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. Our website's changelingthepodcast.com. We're on Facebook as Changeling the Podcast. And you can join our Discord. Do we have a shiny link for that yet? No, we do. We do. We have, we have a shiny new Discord link, discord.me slash CTP. It has been tested. People have joined successfully. It should work. But that link and all of the others will also be in the show notes. Yeah. So yeah, uh, once again, I'm continue to be Josh. And I, I am under a court order to neither confirm nor deny that I may be Puka. Mm-hmm. And uh, once again, um, hopefully you can keep from falling to forgetting after six months. Don't ire your dragon. Leave your dragon's ires where they are. A little-known fact about the second edition core book is that the new Svelte Knotwork border was hand-illuminated by a team of Boggins as a last-minute replacement for the original idea of tinting each page in a pleasing shade of octarine. However, early proofs showed that the pigment reacted with the glossy finish to create an optical mishmash that sent readers immediately into the second stage of bedlam. 
While they received treatment in the form of blankets, soothing Muzak, and cups of smoky Russian caravan tea in a little-used corner of the White Wolf offices, the freelance Boggins worked round the clock to create the final printing's less maddening, but still distinctive, flourishes. Like all freelancers, their pay was appreciated but didn't meet the living wage, leading to the 20-year labor dispute that was finally settled with the official publication of Kit Book Boggin. Rumor has it that if you read that book backwards and upside down in a mirror, you can see Octarine highlights that they included as one last gotcha, but then this rumor came from Apuka, so who can say? What isn't a rumor is that we are very glad to be back for our second season, and grateful for everyone's support in keeping our show going. We're especially grateful to our patrons to whom we'd like to give a shout-out. Derek, Dorkadas, Oreo, Raz Kabuz, Sanchiger, Sija, and Terry Robinson. If you'd like to help us continue bringing Changeling the Dreaming content to the masses, please consider signing up for our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast, and you'll receive a shout-out as well as added benefits of your very own. And in any case, we encourage you to leave a review on the podcast listening platform of your choice, and or share our podcast with your friends, enemies, co-workers, or whomever. Thanks again for listening, and until next time, keep on dreaming.